Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and Happy Easter. Got a lot to talk about this week. We're going to talk about doom scrolling, what that is, and some tips that can help you sleep better, feel more hopeful about the world, more importantly, even uh, than that, and to spend less time on your smartphone, which is what it's actually about. Also going to explore the necessity of evangelization and the power of words for good or for evil. But of course, it is Easter week, and Easter is all about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, the custom on this program has been to open with a reflection on the gospel from the previous Sunday, and most often from the traditional calendar. Now, this year's gospel for Easter in the ordinary form was taken from John, the extraordinary form from Mark, But for reasons of my own, I have chosen the resurrection account from Matthew 28 as our text for today. So uh, let's uh, just jump right in. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to visit the sepulcher. Now, the other Mary here was not the Blessed Virgin Mary, but either the uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas from John 19, or Jesus' aunt, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, whom we meet in the previous chapter in Matthew 27. And behold, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His face shone like lightning, and his garments were as white as snow. The guards were so paralyzed with fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised as he promised he would be. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. Now this is why I've chosen the account from Matthew, uh, because of the words of the angel. When he announced the good news of the resurrection to the holy women, he gave them four distinct messages. Don't be afraid. He isn't here. Come and see. Go quickly and tell. So let's take a look at those. So don't be afraid. See, unlike the guards who were so paralyzed with fear at the sight of the angel that they became like dead men, believers need not fear the resurrection. On the contrary, we should rejoice. We should look to the empty tomb for comfort and, and long for the return of the risen Christ with joyful hope and not with fear. Secondly, he said, he isn't here. Now, when I uh, visited England, I had the opportunity to go to Westminster Abbey, which was built by uh, St. Edward the Confessor, penultimate uh, Saxon king of England back in the Middle Ages. And there are many notable people from English history that are buried at Westminster Abbey, some 3,000 people buried there, including saints and kings and knights and ladies and, and so on. Uh, Many of their names are commemorated with plaques, and many others are lost to history. But it's just one of the many places around the world where you can find the remains of celebrated people. Now, if you go to uh, Jerusalem and you visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you will find the entrance to the tomb of Jesus. And there's a plaque there also, which with three Latin words, non est hic, he is not here. Because Jesus is not dead, and so he's not to be looked for among the dead. He is risen, says the angel. He is alive and present with his people. Number three, he says, come and see. 
like modern pilgrims that go to, to Jerusalem, the holy women were invited to check the evidence for themselves. The angel didn't roll back the stone so that Jesus could get out. Remember uh, his, his um, glorified body. You know, he was able to pass into the upper room, even though the doors were locked. So that, that, that stone would not have offered any obstacle. So the angel didn't roll back the stone so that Jesus could get out, but so that others could get in and to see for themselves that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, just as he promised. The tomb was empty then, then it's empty today because the resurrection is an historical fact. Number four, he said, go quickly and tell the disciples. See, the very first witnesses of the resurrection were called to spread the joyful news. And we too are called to spread the good news of the resurrection, which we're going to talk about in a bit. And it's because Jesus' resurrection is the key to the Christian faith. Why? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, as he promised, and he did, then we can be confident that he will accomplish everything that he promised. And Jesus' bodily resurrection shows us that he, uh, he wasn't a madman or an imposter, but the King of kings and Lord of lords, truly God and truly man. That's why St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 14. But he continues in verse 20, but Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for since death came into the world through a man, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a man. Just as in Adam all die, so all will be brought to life in Christ, but each one in proper order. Christ the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So we can be certain of our resurrection precisely because of his resurrection. Because of his resurrection, we know that death is not the end, that there is eternal life, and that Christ has prepared a place for those who love him. Also, the power that brought Jesus back to life is available to us, to, our, to, to revive our spiritually dead selves, bring us back to life. St. Paul says in, uh, in Romans 6, through that baptism into his death, we were buried with him, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might begin to live a new life. So the resurrection is the basis for the church's witness to the world. Uh, Jesus is more than just a good man or, or a great moral teacher. He is the Son of God, and the resurrection is the smoking gun. And yet people <clears throat> still choose to ignore or deny the resurrection of Jesus, despite the empty tomb. And so every year, just in time for Easter, then out come the, the television shows and the, the special um, editions of the magazines and so forth that attempt to relativize the sacrifice and the triumph of Jesus, or to cast doubt on the biblical accounts and, and purport to give, you know, uh, information about some new archaeological discovery that's going to change everything, which happens every year, although they all come to nothing. And all of this, of course, based on the, the a priori assumption that miracles can't happen, which itself is a statement of faith and not of reason. And that's because all of the available evidence rather tends to support Jesus' claim to be the only begotten Son of God. Certainly nobody before or since has ever predicted his own resurrection and then accomplished it. And that's the question. How do you explain the empty tomb? Well, there are still several theories that uh, 
people uh, trot out, even to this day, even though Scripture itself shows that these these modern theories are anything but new. Uh, to begin, Jesus was only unconscious and later revived. This was called the swoon theory. It was popular in the 19th century. Now, common sense tells us that even if Jesus had miraculously survived his scourging and crucifixion, and if you have ever studied the Shroud or you know just seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, you know how unlikely that is. And even if he had survived, you know how how could he have been able to struggle out of the Shroud and then move the stone from uh, the tomb? And then get past the Roman guards without being seen, make it all the way back to Jerusalem, and go to the upper room. And assuming he had, his condition would hardly su- you know, suggest a miraculous re- restoration or resurrection. We know that uh, many times when Jesus does appear uh, after the resurrection, people don't recognize him. And part of the reason is probably because the last time they saw him, he would have been, you know, he was beaten to a bloody pulp. And the point is that, that such a, a scenario goes directly against the biblical account. Uh, specifically in John 19, we read that Roman soldiers didn't break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. And to be sure that he was dead, one of them pierced his side with a spear, put a spear into his heart. Okay, whatever you want to say about the ancient Romans, the one thing they were good at was killing people. And then in Mark 15, we read that a Roman soldier reported the death to Pilate. Again, uh, given the, the brutality of Roman punishment, you would probably not make a false report to the governor uh, who represented Caesar, right? Also then in John 19, 38 through 40, we read of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapping Jesus's body in the shroud and placing it in the tomb, okay? He was dead. Now, and, and funny thing is that's probably the best of these theories. Uh, the next is that women, uh, the holy women, made a mistake that on Sunday went to the wrong tomb. Now. You know, all of the synoptic gospels witness, uh, you know, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were present when Jesus was placed in the tomb. And that was on Friday evening. I, I would think that they would be unlikely to forget which tomb it was by Sunday morning. And, and on Sunday morning, of course, Peter and John, uh, John, who was, by the way, present with the, with the Marys at the crucifixion, and presumably, uh, when Jesus was interred, Peter and John would have also had to gone to the wrong tomb. Uh, the next is that uh, Jesus' body was stolen. Okay, by whom? Well, unknown thieves. Well, that's unlikely because the tomb was sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers. Likewise, uh, the disciples, if they'd stolen his body, the first obstacle would have been the Roman soldiers. And then the fact that the, the Christian faith rests on the resurrection. If the apostles had stolen Jesus' body, they would have known that their faith was really meaningless because it's, it's, it would have been based on a lie. And yet after the resurrection, the disciples were ready to die for their faith and eventually did. Show me any other 12 men in history who were willing to die for something that they knew was a lie. That doesn't make any sense, and this is no-nonsense Catholic. Okay, we will be back with more uh, right after this. Here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Do stay with us. We'll be back after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we were talking about the resurrection account from Matthew 28 and uh, the various explanations that uh, unbelievers have tried to give for the smoking gun of the resurrection, which is the empty tomb. And we were talking about um, the possibility that someone had stolen uh, the body of our Lord and just to claim that the resurrection had happened. And uh, some people have claimed the apostles stole it. We've understood, uh, we've already spoken about why that's unlikely. <clears throat> but then um, there is a school of thought that the Jewish religious leaders stole the body. But that, that makes the least sense of all. Because, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they wanted above all to stop the rumors of Jesus' resurrection. And if they had taken his body, if they'd been in possession of it, they would only have had to produce it to put an end to the claim that he rose. But of course, they didn't. And finally, when we read in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, we see the resurrection was already causing a great stir in Jerusalem. You know, while the holy women were moving through the streets to, to bring the joyous news that Jesus was risen, uh, the religious leaders were busy plotting how to cover it up. And there's still a great stir over the resurrection today, and there's still only two choices. Either you can turn your back on the truth by denying the resurrection or ignoring it or trying to explain it away, or you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and everything that that implies. And that's why the Holy Bible, the tradition of the Church, Second Vatican Council, a string of popes as long as your arm, all agree that it's the Church's job to evangelize. Right, to share the good news. But in the words of Venerable Pope Pius XII, he said, lay believers are in the front line of church life. For them, the church is the animating principle of human society. Therefore, they in particular ought to have an ever clearer consciousness, not only of belonging to the church, but of being the church. And that sense of being the church was certainly true in the early years of Christianity. You know, believers had an awareness that it was their job to share the good news, not just the apostles or the, the bishops and priests that uh, succeeded them. And by the Middle Ages in Europe, which was uh, then known as Christendom, most people were baptized Christians, and social life revolved around their faith and the church's yearly cycle of uh, holy days. And by then, evangelization was primarily something done by missionaries who were sent by the church to, to peoples who had not yet heard of Jesus. And in our day, St. John Paul II and his successors have expressly called for a new evangelization. And the question is, well, what's new about it? And is it, is it still new? Well, you know, we live today in what is called, I mean, so-called post-Christian era. And, and once again, as in the days of the early church, all Christians really are called to witness and share the gospel with an unbelieving and sometimes hostile culture. However, unlike them, we are also called to evangelize the baptized, and that would include our separated brethren, the fallen away, even those Catholic Christians who have been catechized, at least to a degree, and, and sacramentalized, right, baptized, confirmed, received communion, but who were never really evangelized in the first place. So, so where do we begin? I mean, what's necessary for this new evangelization? Well, again, to quote St. Uh, John Paul II, the first requirement of the new evangelization is the actual witness of Christians who live by the gospel. In order to witness to Christ, it is necessary to encounter him oneself and foster a personal relationship with him through prayer, the Eucharist, sacramental reconciliation, 
through reading and reflection on God's word, the study of Christian doctrine, and service to others. And always, he says, if it is authentic, this will be the Spirit's work much more than our own. So, several things here. First, we evangelize when we you know, walk the talk, as they say. So, by the example of a good Christian life, which is founded on a personal relationship with Jesus. And the hallmark of every personal relationship is communication. You know, the sacraments are the way God communicates his grace to us. The scripture is the way that he communicates his word to us. And prayer, primarily, is the way that we communicate with God. Prayer, in the words of Venerable Fulton Sheen, is a dialogue. Number two, when, uh, which is reading and reflecting on God's word and the study of Christian doctrine. Uh, in his encyclical, As We Enter the New Millennium, John Paul II laid out a seven-step plan for Catholic Christians in the 21st century, which includes uh, studying both the Bible and the Catechism. St. John Paul said, Since lay people are at the forefront of the Church's mission to evangelize all areas of human activity, and that's borrowed from Pius XII, they must be strong enough and sufficiently catechized to testify how the Christian faith constitutes the only valid response to the problems and hope that life poses to every person in society. You notice he said the only valid response, not, not a valid response, not one valid response among many, not even the preferred response, the only valid response to the problems and hope of life. And our study of the Bible and the catechism must flow from a life of prayer. You know, as a layperson, you can encounter the, the scriptures every day by going to Mass, by praying the Liturgy of the Hours, which is communicating with God, the, with, uh, communicating with the Father through the Son in the Spirit by actually praying the Bible. And number three, he said, if our evangelization is authentic, it will be the Spirit's work more than our own. You know, we need to remember that God doesn't command us to be successful, just faithful. Uh, I remember a woman that came to me at a conference and, and tearfully telling me about how she had studied evangelization and bought, you know, got all the apologetics tapes and watches EWTN and so on and so on. And she had not managed to convert anyone in her family, all of whom had fallen away from the faith. And I told her, you know, you need to let yourself off the hook. We are called to evangelize. We are called to be prepared to give to anyone who asks a reason for our hope. But it is the Holy Spirit that does the converting. You know, think about what Jesus said in, to the apostles in Mark 6. He said, If any will not welcome you and refuse to listen to you, leave them immediately and shake off the dust that is on your feet in testimony against them. Now, in Jesus' day, the pious Jews would shake the dust off their feet after passing through Gentile territory, <coughs> pardon me, to show their separation from Gentile culture. So for the disciples to shake the dust from their feet after leaving a Jewish town, okay, this is a very powerful sign that they wanted to separate themselves from those among their own people who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. See, what our Lord was making clear is that all who hear the gospel are responsible for what they do with it. The disciples weren't to blame if his message was rejected, so long as they had faithfully and carefully presented it, as uh, St. Peter says, with gentleness and respect. The point is, we have the responsibility to share the good news clearly and faithfully, but we are not responsible 
when others reject Christ's message. And if our evangelization is successful, please God, we have the Holy Spirit to thank more than our own efforts. Why all this emphasis on evangelization? You know, somebody once said that life is just one damn thing after another. But that's not true. History isn't just a a random series of events, nor is it cyclical like the pagan philosophers thought. On the contrary, history is moving toward a specific point, namely the return of the risen Jesus in glory to judge the living and the dead. That's why there's an urgency to evangelization that never goes away. Acts 1.3 says, After his passion, Jesus had presented himself alive to them by many proofs. He appeared to them during 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So after spending 40 days with his disciples, Jesus returned to heaven while they watched. And then these two white-robed angels appeared and proclaimed to them in, in verse 11, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. That is, bodily and visibly. You know, I I once saw a button that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. (laughs) And it was meant to be funny. But there's some truth to it. We should be preparing for his return, not by standing around looking up at the sky, but by working to share the gospel with others so that they will be able to benefit from his blessings. So the the message of the gospel comes into focus in what is likely the best-known verse of the New Testament, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may attain eternal life. You see, in John 3.16, God sets the pattern of true love which is the basis of all close personal relationships. When you dearly love someone, your love becomes self-giving. That is, you're, you're willing to freely give to the point of sacrifice. So in order to restore our relationship with God that was broken in the Garden of Eden, God paid dearly, the highest price he could pay, the life of his only begotten son. Jesus' sacrifice redeemed us, that is, he, he paid the price for our sins so that he could offer us this new life, the, the new life in the Spirit, the life of grace. So when we evangelize, that is, when we share the gospel with others, our love must be like his love, self-sacrificing, ready to give up our own comfort and security so that others might join us in receiving God's saving graces. And we mustn't forget that that modern technology offers us new opportunities for evangelization, which we'll talk about uh, next week. But I wanted to uh, close with what John Paul said um, about apostles in the third millennium. And, And when he says that, he means us primarily. He says, as apostles for the third millennium, speaking to lay people, your task is to preserve and keep alive the awareness of the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ especially in the celebration of the Eucharist. And you must keep alive the memory of the words of life which he spoke, the marvelous works of mercy and goodness which he performed. You must constantly remind the world of the power of the gospel to save. And that's no nonsense. All right. I'm going to talk a little bit later in the program 
about something called doom scrolling. Right? This is a, a term that uh, has been given to kind of scrolling endlessly on the internet or on your smartphone, doom surfing, it's also called. Um, and it's, it's actually leading to some pretty negative benefits, uh, to uh, loss of sleep and to actually just a, a kind of a bleak outline on the world. It's, it's interesting that they've discovered that the people who doom scroll and, and the, the reason they've called it that is that often people become almost addicted to scrolling through, uh, these, you know, news or, or gossip, whatever you want to call it, that is negative or upsetting. All right. And there's there's something you can do about it. So we are going to talk about that later. Um, uh, but I did also want to talk about the power of words. Words are words are powerful. They cause wars and they end them. And in the Gospel of John, we, we learned that it was the word of God, namely Jesus, that created everything because the word was with God and the word was God. Words are powerful. And we're going to talk about that in the next segment when we come back. With lots more no nonsense Catholics right after this. Stay with us. <laughs> Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We were talking before the break about the power of words. Words are powerful. And I wanted to bring this up because we were talking about evangelization and the need to begin with good example. Even John Paul II says this is where evangelization begins with the example of a good Christian life. And, of course, there's a quote, a very popular quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Now, Franciscan scholars don't agree if he actually said it or not, but studying his life, you can see that he was certainly no stranger to using words. In fact, he was ordained a deacon precisely so he could go into churches and preach the gospel, because words are powerful. Father John Hampsch, God rest his soul, told a great story about the power of words. He said, um, in a in a, the country church of a small village, an altar boy serving the priest at Sunday Mass accidentally dropped the cruet of wine. The village priest slapped the altar boy sharply on the cheek and in a gruff voice shouted, leave the altar and don't come back. And that boy turned away from the church and became a hardline atheist known the world over as Tito, communist dictator of Yugoslavia. In the cathedral of a large city, an altar boy was serving the bishop at Sunday Mass, accidentally dropped the crude of wine. With a warm twinkle in his eyes, the bishop gently whispered, Someday you will be a priest. And that boy grew up to become one of the most famous preachers and convert makers of modern times, Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Now, Father's point is this, that the words that we use and the manner in which we use them to communicate with others in speech or even in writing, and, and that would include tweets and blogs and Facebook posts. Our words have consequences that uh, we seldom recognize or anticipate. And Father says if we could see all the good effects uh, and all of the bad effects of every sentence we've ever spoken or written, we would be overwhelmed with joy on the one hand for the positive effects we had on people, and on the other hand, overwhelmed with deep regret 
for the hurtful feelings that we've caused others. And I suspect he's correct. You know, there's an often forgotten truth that Jesus reminds us of in Matthew 12 when he says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to render an account for every careless word they utter. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And what our Lord is reminding us here is that what we say reveals what's in our heart. That's what's really in our heart is exposed in the words that come out of our mouth. But you can't solve, well, Father Ham said, you can't solve your heart problem just by cleaning up your speech. Right? St. Paul tells us you have to put on the mind of Christ. You have to allow the Holy Spirit to fill you with new attitudes and new motives. You put on, put on the new man. You put on Christ. And in that way, your speech will be cleansed at its source. St. James reminds us, um, although the tongue is small, he says, it can cause great harm. Just as a single match can start a forest fire. <laughs> uh, James 3.6 says, and the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil that infects the entire body. It sets afire the entire course of our existence and is itself set on fire by Gehenna. Right, so that that that's the fire of our tongue was is is set by the fires of hell. Strong words. James says that the unbridled tongue, that is to say, uncontrolled speech, can do terrible damage. Satan uses the tongue to divide people and to pit them against one another. And I think this, you know, we keep that in mind when we talk about doom scrolling. That very often, you know, we need to look for the source of, of some of this information. So the point is for us, though, we need to not be careless with what we say, especially thinking, well, I can just apologize later. Because even if you do, and of course you should, often the damage is already done. You know, a few words spoken in anger can devastate a relationship that took years to build. Hasty words written on the Internet can stay there for, I don't know, presumably forever. So before you speak, before you write, remember that words are like fire that once spoken, you can neither control or reverse the damage that they do. And also, by the same token, remember that our words can also bring about good. Like in that story about Tito and the, the parallel story about Venerable Fulton Sheen. St. James in verse 10 of chapter 3 of his epistle says, Out of the same mouth <clears throat> flow blessings and curses. And Father Hampshed, like so, Father Hampshed, said, <laughs> like so many things in life, human speech can either be used or abused. And for that reason, we're constantly confronted with a free will choice to use that gift of speech to further God's kingdom or to hinder it. And one last point, <clears throat> some might try and find this middle ground where words are neutral. Okay. And I think that that it's... It, it comes from the idea, the, the correct idea, that virtue lies in the middle between two extremes. So the virtue of courage, for example, that virtue is on a mean. And, and you, can, you can sin against that virtue by defect, right? So to, by being a coward. And you can also sin by excess, right? By, by being rash, taking unnecessary chances. That's not courage. That's, that's you know, rashness. So the, the virtue is in the middle. But we're not talking about uh, a virtue here that's that's on a mean. We're talking about truth and falsehood. Okay, Jesus said, "Whoever is not with me is against me." 
and whoever does not gather with me scatters. At the end of the day, it's not really possible to be neutral about Christ. And I would remind you that choosing to say nothing is still a choice. And anybody who is not actively trying to follow Christ, that is, anybody who's trying to remain neutral in the struggle of good and evil, and that includes believers, they're really choosing to be separated from God, really choosing to to reject him who alone is good. To refuse to follow Christ when you know him is to side with his enemies. And that's no nonsense. Okay. I know it's kind of heavy, but uh, it it really leads up to our discussion of what they call doom scrolling. I'm talking about doom scrolling and what you can do about it. I actually ran across an article by uh, a lady whose name is Kaylin Kaupish, I want to say. Kaupish. K-A-U-P-I-S-H. Okay, from March the 4th of this year. It was called uh, Doom Scrolling, What It Is and How to Stop. She begins, uh, they call it doom scrolling. Okay, and you know what I should say? When when I say they, we're talking about Merriam-Webster, okay? The the terms doom scrolling, a.k.a. doom surfing, have been added to the dictionary. So so what what is doom scrolling, according to Webster? It is, quote, the tendency to continue to surf or scroll through bad news, even though that news is saddening, disheartening, or depressing. See, doom scrolling is a bad habit. And uh, clearly, if you're spending more and more time scrolling through your phone, chances are it's not making you feel any better. In fact, it probably makes you feel worse. And and this is the topic of, of the article that I read uh, by Ms. Kaupish. Um, and she writes, quote, according to Healthline, doom scrolling can have many negative effects. From disruptive sleep sleep, to increased anxiety and depression, this can lead to us feeling unrested and less hopeful about the world. And that's the thing that I wanted to uh, draw attention to, that constantly feeding yourself in this way can make you feel less hopeful about things. The world looks bleaker if you're only ever looking at it from this, this one perspective. And the people on the Internet understand um, you know, this is another thing, what they call it rage porn, which is where uh, people write uh, articles or at least headlines <clears throat> that are intended to make you angry. Because when you get angry, especially if you're getting angry about something that you consider important, you get a little release of dopamine. And it makes you actually feel good, but only for a second. And the the link, you know, the, the, the long lasting effect is that you can uh, wind up embracing a critical spirit that's dangerous for you both emotionally and spiritually. Um, she offers a number of uh, steps, and we're going to look at that uh, most likely in the next segment here. Five practical steps that we can take to walk away from the phone and live our lives with more hope, to, to live more positively and break that cycle of dream scrolling. But, you know, before we go looking at those tips, I um, I think that St. Paul could have been talking about the antidote to doom scrolling and, and rage porn uh, in Philippians 4, verses 8 through 9. He says, Finally, brethren, let your minds be filled with whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise. Do the things that you have learned, received, and heard from me, and that you saw me doing. Then the peace of Christ will be with you. Right? So he's telling us to, to fill your minds with that what's good and true and beautiful, and not with things that are, that are negative or uh, untrue or that make you angry. You're not going to find the peace of Christ in the latest gossip. And that was true in the first century, then it's true in the 21st century. And uh, somewhere in between, like uh, Thomas Akempis, back in the Middle Ages, he says in The Imitation of Christ, we would indeed have peace if we would attend to our own affairs. I love that. You know, it's like the first thing is, like, mind your own business. What does any of this have to do with anything? You know, what, what Hollywood star is, is, is cheating on their spouse? You know, or, or, or what what uh, what member of the royal family is throwing it all away to, uh, you know, whatever. What does it? What does any of that have to do with the price of tea in China, or more importantly, our salvation? Akempis says we're too absorbed in our own passions and too concerned with passing things. In other words, if you want the peace of Christ, first detach yourself from worldly concerns, and then, as Saint Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice always, I say rejoice, because a purified heart is able to recognize the gift of Christ in all circumstances. And that's no nonsense. Be right back. All right, welcome back. Final round here on No Nonsense Catholic this week. We're talking about doom scrolling. I I have a prayer book. I've actually worn out <laughs> a couple of prior editions of this book, and my beloved wife just got me another copy, my favorite little prayer book, and I read from it every day. That's why, you know, I, I keep burning through them. And uh, a couple of times since I've been Catholic, they've updated, right? You know, when they did the new translation of the Novus Ordo Mise, for example, they changed the uh, uh, the wording of the ordinary that appears in this uh, book and, and that sort of thing. And I noticed in the latest edition, or actually it was the, the previous latest edition, um, that they have a, a act of contrition where you make the purpose of amendment. It says that I, uh, I firmly, you know, uh, resolve to s- sin no more and to avoid the near occasions of sin. That's what it used to say, right? The near occasion, the proximate occasions of sin. And they changed it to and avoid the unnecessary occasions of sin. And I bring that up because we're going to be talking about the the internet and and the smartphone and and social media. And most people today uh, can't just turn that off because it's a, it's a part of their you know the way that they communicate with their family and friends. It's a part of their uh, business for most people. You can't avoid the internet and you can't avoid the various channels for accessing the internet and still live and move and have your being in the 21st century world. But it it is also possible though, to make use of these technologies without having them using you. All right. We can certainly avoid doom scrolling, which is what we're talking about here. Um, as I said, I read an article from a gal named Kaylin Kaupish, K-A-U-P-I-S-H called doom scrolling, what it is and how to stop. And she 
offers five practical tips to break that cycle. Number one, she says, set a timer for yourself. Obviously, the best way to minimize your, your doom scrolling is to just spend less time on your phone, right? Scrolling through this, this, these negative stories. Uh, just don't spend so much time. Uh, so if your excuse to pick up the phone is that you want to catch up with what your friends are doing on social media, then she says, put a timer on your phone, you know, set it for 10, 15 minutes, whatever, some reasonable time. And when it goes off, close out the app. You know, apparently there's even a function on some phones that will limit how often you can have a certain app open. You know, people have figured this out. It's like, I can't, I'm going to make sure that this Tetris app closes after 12 hours or whatever, you know, people who spend a lot of time on something, they can, they can, uh, program it to shut itself off. And so if you set a low limit for these, those, uh, social media apps that you use most often, if you've got this habit, that's a, an easy way to break it. Number two is take note of when you're doing it, if you're doom scrolling, if you find yourself doing that, when does it happen? You know, do, do you reach for your phone first thing in the morning? Right. Is it, is it the, the cell phone before the coffee even, uh, maybe during your lunch break. I remember going out to lunch with my brother not that long ago. And I was making a comment about how you can't go anywhere that isn't filled with TV screens. And we were at a, a you know, kind of a, just a step up from a fast food restaurant, but there were, there were television monitors everywhere with sports games and so forth. And we were sitting next to a group of men who were clearly, you know, they're, they're dressed in their shirts and ties, uh, clearly on lunch and not a, one of them was interacting. They were all staring at their phones. Okay. So take note, when is it happening? And, you know, uh, and I suspect for, for many of us, it's at night, you know, you want to unwind after work. And so you do that and then you doom scrolling and all of a sudden it's three in the morning. Human beings are creatures of habit. So the chances are good that if you do your doom scrolling, then you do it at the same time every day. So, you know, take note when you're doing that and plan ahead, you know, some kind of non phone related activity, right? You're going to go, I'm going to go listen to music or I'm going to take a walk or do some light exercise or unwind by reading a book or praying the rosary instead of uh, going on the social media. Number three on her list of five things to do to avoid doom scrolling is to find ways to use your phone to lift your spirits rather than looking at negative stories. You know, instead of letting your phone bring you down, use it as a tool to help lift your spirits instead. So um, call or text or FaceTime with a friend or a family member that you haven't connected with in a while. Uh, listen to an audiobook. Listen to a podcast like this one. <laughs> uh, the Augustine Institute uh, has a free app called Amen that uh, has reflections on the mass and uh, short inspirational messages, special meditations. They have a thing called the evening psalms that are essentially, I mean, it's the psalms, but they presented like a grown-up bedtime story in the sense that it's designed to help you relax or even fall asleep while you're listening to God's word. And not to toot my own horn, but I contributed an audio rosary and other prayers, uh, as well as an audio version of the Bible in a year, right? So the whole Bible broke into 365 daily readings for the Amen app. And for that matter, our own VMPR app has all of our daily podcasts, plus we've got the Stations of the Cross and a daily rosary with yours truly and Terry and Jesse. And this isn't a commercial. See, both of those apps are free. And they're much better for you than doom scrolling. Number four, check in with friends and family. 
And when I say that, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, doing that as an alternative to doom scrolling, but check in with how your friends and family are doing in this regard. See, doom scrolling is addictive. You know, so many people, I, I suspect they're there going, well, just one more post, just one more article. Right. And then you, before you know it, like I say, uh, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning, you've been doom scrolling for hours and you're in a terrible mood. And so it's important to check in with friends and family to make sure that they aren't spending too much time reading negative media. And then you can ask them to do the same thing for you. And then speaking of friends or family, now that COVID is pretty much over, please, God, uh, get together with people. Enough with the virtual stuff. Get together, you know, actually. Plan activities where you're going to spend time together and spend time together without constantly checking your phones, you know. So a backyard barbecue, a walk in a park, playing board games, uh, watching a movie, whatever. Focus on each other and not uh, on the phone. Like I say, don't be like those guys that I saw at lunch who are sitting, you know, six or eight people around a table and not a one of them interacting with the other. Number five, um, don't look at your phone before bed. I mentioned before that this is like a prime time for doom scrolling. And I'm sure that most people that I'll check the internet before I hit the sack. And even if you don't wind up scrolling or surfing your computer till the wee hours of the morning, the, the, the doom scrolling, right? Being, uh, accessing this negative stuff, um, will make you more anxious and, and, uh, it's, it hurts your uh, ability to, to fall asleep when you should, you know, I mean, you could be using that time to relax and reflect on your day and, you know, and that's why evening time is a traditional time to check in with God, either through prayer or meditation, reading your favorite Bible passages. I don't know. If you're praying the liturgy of the hours, you've got a built-in night prayer every day. And of course, before bedtime is a perfect time to pray the rosary as a family. Uh, back in 2005, I was pursuing a, a certificate in Christian counseling, and I learned from Dr. Archibald Hart about the problems and the dangers of stress. And that's another thing that doom scrolling leads to stress. And of course, what you need is not more stress, but less because stress worsens or, or increases the risk of a whole host of health issues, obesity and heart disease and high blood pressure and Alzheimer's and diabetes and depression and et cetera, and et cetera. Dr. Hart talked about the way the body works and the need for you to shut down before you go to sleep. And once upon a time that was accomplished by the fact that the sun went down and it got dark. <laughs> so people went to bed until it was light again. You know, but, you know, with the advent of electric lights and now the advent of the TV screen and the computer screen and the smartphone screen, that important winding down time is being compromised. Uh, my wife, Betty, and I instituted the family rosary uh, in the evening when our kids were little. And one of the rules was that before we got ready for bed, we'd shut off all the media and turn off all the screens and turn out all the lights in the living room. And sometimes we burn candles and then we discover these electric candles that approximate the look of candlelight, but you know, without the chance of burning the house down. Um, but I remember some people would be, would, would say, well, that's, you know, you're compromising the rosary. You pray the rosary at bedtime. Don't the children just fall asleep? And I thought to myself, you must not have children because clearly it's, you know, I would rather carry a sleeping child to bed than, than to drag one kicking and screaming. But, uh, you know, it's, it's because of this winding down process and prayer is a wonderful way to do that. Uh, also just avoiding a screen. That's why you can read a book and it will put you to sleep. Whereas the doom scrolling will keep you awake. 
You know, the difference really is the screen. And that's also why listening to something on an app rather or, you know, looking at things that are positive rather than scrolling through this negative test text or video clips that can help you uh, help your relaxation instead of hindering it. And that's no nonsense. The, the, the difference is the screen. So don't give in to to doom scrolling. And if you have then check out this uh, this article or look at uh, um, for tips to avoid it. And and I all, I do want to recommend um, regular prayer time, of course, in the evening. But also maybe checking out some of those Catholic apps like Amen or uh, the, the various things on our Virgin Most Powerful app as a way that if you're going to be using your smartphone anyhow, that you can use it in a way that is going to be not only positive and help you be a more hopeful person but also something that's going to help you spiritually as well, because it is through prayer that we communicate to God. And it is, uh, through, you know, meditation on his word that we, uh, you not only become closer to him, but become closer to each other as well. The, uh, the prayer is really the heart and soul of apologetics and evangelization. These things that, that we are so concerned with here, um, on Virgin Most Powerful and on these programs, we, we never want to lose sight of the fact that it begins and ends with our relationship with our good Lord Jesus Christ and how that is facilitated uh, by the church because it's through the church, through the sacraments, that the graces that our Lord won on the Holy Cross are communicated to the world. And we are the ambassadors, we are the apostles of, of that communication, helping to spread it in our own lives, according to our own circumstances and our own means. All right. Thank you for listening. As always, it's great to have you along with us. We talked about evangelization this week. We're going to talk about it next week as well. It is my um, plan at this time, so God willing in the creek don't rise, to talk about evangelization, specifically what the modern popes have had to say about evangelization through the media and most especially through social media, because that is something that every Catholic and all of the lay Catholics, as well as the uh, as well as our clergy, can participate in that. We, you know, it's, it's a, it is a uh, almost painless way to evangelize. You know, the, the putting up a meme is kind of like the pamphleteering of a hundred years ago. All right. Until then, thank you again for listening. Thank you so much, especially for your support. Speaking of prayer, thank you for your prayers. Uh, and if you have the means to support us financially, we need that help too. Visit vmpr.org to find out how. Click on Donate Now. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.